All right. Well, it's great to see you guys again. Good morning. Welcome to Community Church. It's always great to see you. It's great to uh, worship with you. Uh, I hope that you've had a great week. I hope that you've had a blessed week. And I hope that you've come this morning prayed up and really ready to dig into the Word of God. And, and again, I, I want to just thank the Newman family for leading worship for us today. Thank you all so much. Uh, really, really appreciate that. It was a big blessing. Uh, I know that it was a big blessing to me and, and everyone here. So we'll be praying for you as you travel. And it's just been a joy to have, to have you here. Um, we talked about prayer. We talked about worship. But both of those things are critical elements to our service each and every week. Um, you know, because they help us to prepare our hearts to receive the Word of God. So we pray to the Father, we worship Christ the Son, right, through the Spirit, and that prepares us to get into the Word, to open the Word, to read it, to study it with a prepared heart. And so we do all of this in hopeful expectation that we're going to receive from God, as Peter said, all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue. Okay, that's 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. So again, what a privilege it is as sons and daughters of God to come into His presence each and every week with thanksgiving and with that hopeful expectation that, yes, we're going to receive everything that we need, everything that we need to live this life of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to receive that through the knowledge of Christ that we have in the Word of Christ. I mean... It is good to be a Christian. It is so good to be a follower of Christ. I wouldn't want to struggle through this life any other way. I'll tell you that right now. But this morning, we're going to continue on in our study through the Gospel of Luke. And so we're going to be in Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 27. And you're welcome to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles if you'd like to. Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 27. And some of you will remember from our previous studies here in this chapter that Christ has already sent out his 12 disciples. He sent them out on their own for the very first time, and he sent them out with a couple of things, both power and authority. And he sent them all throughout Galilee. Okay, and then after that, he, after they wrapped up their local mission trip, rather, to the region of Galilee, Christ tried to get them away privately to a place called Bethsaida. And they were hoping that they could get a little rest when they got there. But as we know, that didn't happen because the crowds actually followed them there. And of course, Christ, as he always does, he showed compassion on them. He spoke to them about the kingdom of God and he healed all of those who needed healing. And he fed more than 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. And then afterwards, as the apostle John tells us in John 6, Christ then actually explained that he was the bread of God. The very bread that will fill you so that you will never hunger again. And so after he said these things, the Jews, well, they complained and they actually quarreled among themselves. And ultimately they rejected him. OK, and his own people rejected him. But unfortunately, so did many of his disciples. OK, as John chapter six, verse 66 tells us from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. How sad. So Jesus, he says to the 12, he said, do you also want to go away? And this is where we pick up our story today in Luke's gospel. Okay, we've reached a critically important time in the life of Christ and in the life of his disciples. And these 12 men who've been following Christ all over the place for many, many months now, they have a decision to make. Do we stay or do we go? Right. I mean, 
Have the disciples really been learning all that Christ has been teaching them? Have all of these miracles actually led them to the right conclusion about the man? What do they really believe? What do they really believe about Christ? Who is he? You see, Christ has been preparing his disciples for their own journey that lies ahead because he's about to begin his own journey toward Jerusalem. So Christ here is beginning to wrap up his Galilean ministry at this point, and soon he's going to be headed to Jerusalem, which we know what that means, right? He's going to be headed to the cross. And so in our passage this morning, Christ will directly confront his men about what they truly believe about him, and then he's going to give them insight into who he is, into what he's going to do, into into what is coming, all right? So to sum all of this up, we're going to see three very specific truths in our scriptures today. We're going to see the truth about the Christ. We're going to see the truth about his cross, and we're going to see the truth about his kingdom. So pray with me quickly, and then we'll get into our text. Lord, we love you, and thank you again for this word, the very word of God, the word that has been settled in heaven, We thank you, Lord, that it is unchanging and perfect, that it's all we need for life and godliness, and that, Lord, through the power of your Spirit, you will guide us into all truth. And that's my prayer this morning, that you would do exactly that. As we look into your word, please teach us. Help us to learn how to apply it to our life. For it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. So Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 18, says, And it happened. As he was alone praying that his disciples joined him, and he asked them, saying, Who do the crowds say that I am? So they answered and said, John the Baptist. But some say Elijah, and others say that one of the old prophets has risen again. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. Verse 21, And he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things. And be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then he said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Verse 24, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his fathers and the holy angels. Verse 27, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. All right, so quite a powerful passage of scripture this morning. And if you're a note taker, the comparison passages here among the other gospels can be found in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 28. In Mark chapter 8, verses 27, all the way down through Mark 9, verse 1. And of course, as I've already mentioned, John 6 will help us, uh, will help provide context rather for all of us as we go through this study as well. But we learn here in our comparison of the Gospels from Matthew and Mark both that Christ and his disciples were actually in a place called Caesarea Philippi. Okay, that's where they were, which this is in the northern region of Galilee. It's about 15 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, and it lays in the foothills of Mount Hermon. So it's very close to the border of Gentile and Jewish lands, Okay, which tells us, I think, a couple of things. One, that when the Word of God says that they went throughout the towns preaching the gospel and healing everywhere, that was Luke 9, 6, meaning everywhere in Galilee, 
That included this little area here in the northernmost portion of the region called Caesarea Philippi. So Christ and his disciples really did go everywhere. The second thing I think we learned from that is that Christ, again, is coming to the end of his Galilean ministry here. His own people have rejected him. Okay, and so soon he's going to be making his way to Jerusalem. The gospel is going to, at that point, be going out to the entire world. And so I would think, now I'm just thinking, I'm speculating, okay? Surely all of that was on his mind. As he stood there at the border on Jewish land, but was yet able to look out across the border into the Gentile world. Surely the cross was on his mind at that point. But Luke begins our passage like this in verse 18. He says, and it happened. And he was alone praying that his disciples joined him. And he asked them saying, who do the crowds say that I am? Now, Luke says, and it happened. What happened? Well, in this passage, we're going to see Christ ask a question. We're going to see Peter give a confession. And we're going to see Christ give an invitation as well. So Luke is preparing us here for a climax in his gospel account. Okay, Christ has been teaching and healing and serving and helping Uh, discipling, all of these things. And of course, his disciples had been doing many of the same things as well. But then Luke writes, and it happened. And it happened. So this happened while he was alone praying. And so I had to stop right there. And it made me think, man, I wonder how many significant things have happened in my life as a result of my alone time with God. How many? Of course, that makes me wonder what even greater things of significance begin to happen if I had more alone time with God. See, Christ prayed alone a lot. He prayed alone the night before he chose these 12 men as his disciples in Luke 6, verses 12 through 13. And I think that Luke records seven unique times that Christ prayed that the other gospel writers don't include. So clearly the Holy Spirit, through the the writings of Luke here, intended to convey the absolute importance of prayer in the life of a believer. The importance of not only prayer, but getting alone with God. And so this time as Christ prayed, his disciples approached him. And I think we also get a glimpse of what was likely on the mind of our Lord as he prayed. So as the disciples joined him, Christ asked the first question. Here it is. He says, who do the crowds say that I am? Verse 19 So they answered and said, John the Baptist. But some say Elijah, and others say that one of the old prophets has risen again. So the first question actually leads to the first confession. Okay, The disciples tell Jesus that, well, the crowds think you're John the Baptist or Elijah. Matthew tells us that some of them thought he was Jeremiah. That's Matthew 16, 14, or possibly one of the old prophets. And so the opinions here vary. Okay, And honestly, if you think about it, the folks that these guys are mentioning here, that the crowd is mentioning, they're all important people. All of them are important people, which tells us that these guys, the crowd at least, had a very high opinion of Christ. I mean, he was very important. He might have even been sent from God, right? Just like Elijah, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. They were expecting Elijah. But in their minds, even though these were important people, he was still not the most important He wasn't the son of God. As J. Vernon McGee said, all opinions were high, but all of them fell short of who he actually was and who he actually is. That's right. See, Christ was on the mind and in the mouth of just about everyone at this time. But the confessions varied a great deal, of course. In other words, their hearts were not settled. 
on the conclusion of who Christ was. But one day, as Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verse 11, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father, right? This wasn't happening at this time, right? So just like today, the confessions of the crowd remained very confused, you could say. And honestly, that does kind of make me scratch my head a little bit and wonder why, right? I mean, how can so many people, even today, remain so confused about Christ? How can that happen? Because the reality of Christ can only be denied by those who choose to deny reality. What I mean is this, the truth that Christ existed is irrefutable. History is clear. Christ existed, right? No one in their right mind can honestly deny that fact, okay? But the verdict is still out in the minds of many people, even though we can't deny his existence. So we have to deal with the question of who is he? Okay, the question is not, did he exist? The question is, who is he? The crowds here, they held a very high opinion of Christ. I mean, he was among the greatest of all the prophets to ever live, maybe even the greatest. But even at that, Christ would have only been one among many. He would have, at best, been first among equals, okay, in that view. But, of course, we know Christ has no equal. There are no comparisons to Christ. And so the answer from the crowd here is not satisfactory at all. Think about it. How many false religions have popped up over time simply because of a very low view of Christ? Islam, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness. I mean, we could go on and on, right? How many people will miss heaven because they refuse to believe the truth about who Christ is? Too many people have a very low view of Christ. And so we're all going to be faced with this question because after Christ gets this unsatisfactory answer about what the crowd thinks, well, of course, then he turns directly to his disciples, right? And he asks them the question of the ages. And it's the very question, again, that is before each and every one of us. And we have to answer this question because in this question, within this question, there is an eternal consequence attached to it. Okay, listen to it. Verse 20. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Very direct. Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. Amen. He got it, right? This is the it that happened in verse 18. Okay, the first question was, who do the crowd say that I am? The first confession was all wrong. Okay, so Jesus asked another question. Who do you say that I am? And of course, Peter's confession was exactly right. Peter said, the Christ of God, which means Messiah. That's where we get our word Messiah. And you see, this is important because this word Messiah right here to the Jew would mean at least three things, that Christ was also prophet, priest, and king. Okay? So when, when Peter said, you are the Christ of God, you are the Messiah of God, what he was saying is that Jesus, you are the perfect and the final prophet. Okay, you are the full incarnate revelation. He's saying, Jesus, you are the perfect and final priest, all right, which is to say you provide the perfect redemption for us. And of course, Christ, you are the perfect and final king, the only one who rules completely and eternally. So when Peter said you are the Christ, what he is saying is that, Jesus, you are prophet, priest, and king. You are the anointed one of God. You are Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus, the Messiah. And of course, he was absolutely right when he said that, right? 
Now, I'm not going to take the time to go into all the details today, but it would be well worth your time to go back to Matthew chapter 16, especially verses 17 through 19, and sort of study out the blessing of Christ upon Peter as a result of his answer. Okay, because in that, we see the role of the Father in the revelation of his Son. And it's in that passage there in Matthew 16 that we also see the word church used for the very first time in the New Testament. So the idea of the church was born in Matthew 16, verse 18, the ecclesia, the called out assembly to which Jesus told Peter, he said, Peter, Petros, on this rock, the Petra, I will build my church. Okay, which metaphorically means firm, strong, unyielding. That's the kind of soul that Jesus will build his church upon. That's the rock. Okay, so Christ is going to build his church upon believers throughout the ages with that kind of resolve. Those who have a firm, strong, and unyielding soul. Of course, we know that the church would be born at Pentecost, right? But it was first proclaimed right here at Caesarea Philippi. I think it's pretty cool to look back and see the history of the church, this called out assembly that you and I are still a part of today. It's very interesting to me. And by the way, this church will remain until Christ comes again, because he also told Peter that very same day, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Praise the Lord for that. You know, I mentioned earlier that I'm I'm so glad to be a Christian, and I tell you, I am because I wouldn't want to be a part of any other assembly. I wouldn't want to be a part of any other assembly than the called out assembly of the saints, because there is no other assembly that I can think of that is as safe or as secure as the assembly of the saints in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Think about all the ways people try to find community and they try to find assemblies, but miss it. I mean, we could name a hundred, but think about the Freemasons, right? They missed it. You could go down to the Elks Lodge if you wanted to. No, that's going to miss it. Pick your favorite social club, right? It doesn't matter. I mean, you could even go down to Maggie's Bar on Friday night and you're not going to be able to find the safety and security that you'll find in the called out assembly of the saints in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's hope for eternity in Christ's church. Uh, You're not going to find that hope anywhere else. And so just as Christ gave that assurance to Peter, he also gives it to each and every one of us who actually recognize and receive Jesus, for who he really is, the Christ of God, right? And of course, Christ has to tell his brothers in John chapter 7, verse 6. After this, he says, you know what? My time has not yet come. Therefore, here in Luke 9, 21, he gives his disciples these instructions. He says, he strictly warned them and commanded them to tell no one. So this is two things. It's a warning and it's a command, okay, at this point. Don't tell anybody. Why? That immediately comes up, right? Why, why wouldn't he? Well, it's because nothing, first of all, was going to distract or deter Christ from his cross. Okay, nothing was going to deter him from the cross. And even though his disciples had rightly confessed who he was at this point as the Son of God, the Messiah, right? They recognized who he was. Christ was still going to have to complete his mission. Okay, his mission was still before him, meaning there was work yet to do in order to accomplish the work of redemption. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8, if they, referring to the Jewish rulers, had known the truth, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Okay, so this is why Jesus had to ask people to keep quiet. Okay, this is why he spoke to these Jewish leaders in parables and so on, so that the mission of the cross 
would be accomplished, right? Remember, Christ asked his disciples first, who did the crowds say that I am, right? That was the first question. He did not ask them, who do the ruling class say that I am? He didn't ask them, who do the Jewish leaders say that I am? No, who do the crowds say that I am? You see, Christ was concerned about the people. He was concerned about all of those who had not already hardened their hearts in their own rebellion, Okay, which, of course, many of the religious elites of Christ's day had already done, right? And furthermore, another reason that Jesus told his guys to sort of keep a lid on things for now is because his disciples would need to wait until after the cross, after his resurrection, in order to gain a full understanding of who he was, okay? A full understanding. See, you and I, we have the advantage of history, Right? And that helps us to understand the complete story of Christ. But here, the story is still developing. Right? And Jesus didn't want a partial or an incomplete story about himself to be told. And so he tells him to be quiet. William Barclay says, Before they could preach that Jesus was the Messiah, they had to learn what that meant. And that's exactly right. So you and I, we have the advantage of bringing people to Christ. We ask them to come to Christ. But as Matthew tells us, only the Father brings true conviction of who His Son is, right? The Father is the one who reveals the Son. That's Matthew 16, 17. And a full revelation of Christ would not be possible until His resurrection. So it was clearly not time for Christ to be revealed as the Messiah, at least not to the world at this point. However, um, he would reveal it to his disciples along with the mission that was ahead of him. We see that the Messiah must go to the cross, verse 22, saying the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised the third day. Now look at what Jesus said. He said the Son of Man must suffer many things, right? These things must happen. I mean, he's telling his men here, guys, in order for me to be the Christ, in order for me to be the Messiah of God, in order for God's plan from the foundation of the world to be fulfilled, these things must happen. Okay, and that's important because the cross has always been the plan of redemption, right? The cross was never plan B. This was always the plan. And so... He was helping his disciples to understand that at this point. Peter obviously understood that later on after Christ's mission had been completed because he wrote about it in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. John, we know, got it because he also wrote about it in Revelation 13, 8. But at this time, the plan, if you will, was still in motion. Again, it was still developing, right? And so Christ, he begins to unfold his plan of redemption here to his disciples and by the way, this is the first of three times that Jesus will do this in the Gospel of Luke. He actually predicts his death and his resurrection three times in this Gospel. Here, again in Luke 9, 43 through 45, and over in Luke 18, 31 through 34 as well. But Christ's words here in verse 22 are the mission of the Messiah. That's what we're reading. These are the words of the sinless Son of God, okay, as to how He will bring reconciliation between God and man. Yes, there's going to be suffering. Guys, there's going to be rejection, and there's also going to be death. So think about that. The Messiah just told us His mission, and it's horrible, right? What should this tell us about our own condition? 
that the sinless Son of God, the Christ of God, would have to endure such things as this in order to mend our broken relationship with our Heavenly Father. Man, how wretched are we that Christ would have to do all of that for us? Guys, I think the first step we need to understand toward salvation is that we need to understand our need to be saved. That's step one. We have to understand our need to be saved. We are dead in our trespasses and in our sins. But praise God, death is not the end. Um, death doesn't get the final word for the believer. Okay, Death could not defeat Christ our Lord. And it's interesting to me, did you notice that Christ doesn't mention his death without mentioning his resurrection? And uh, check me on this, but I don't think he ever does. I think he always mentions them together. Because the mission is not complete, right? Until Christ walks out of that grave. That's when it's finished, right? The gospel is not really good news if Christ is still dead, in other words. But he's not. Again, we serve a risen Savior. He is alive. Christ did not come to merely die. He came to conquer death. So hopefully, this mission here was beginning to make a little more sense to his disciples because at this time, the prevailing view of the Messiah for most people was one of revolution, Okay, that's what they wanted. They wanted revolution. They wanted to conquer the enemy by force. Right again, but this was a very low view of who the Messiah would be and what the Messiah would do. I mean, think about that. Even, I mean, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, seemingly any one of the old prophets could have potentially brought about a revolution that would have freed Israel from Rome. Okay? So to lump Christ in with that group is a very low view of Christ because only Christ could bring redemption that could free Israel and the world from our sin. You see, the mission is not um, revolution, it's redemption. That's the mission. The enemy is not Rome, the enemy is our sin, the very sin that brought death into the world. So Christ came to conquer the very thing that had captured and conquered humanity all throughout history, which of course is sin and death. The Bible says, he who knew no sin became sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21. And it also tells us that the last enemy is death, 1 Corinthians 15.26. And both were conquered for all of eternity by Christ at his cross. And of course, through his resurrection from the dead. Death has no hold upon Christ. Death has no hold upon his children. Amen to that. Verse 23. Then he said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Okay, so there were other people present here besides Christ and his disciples. And we see that in Mark eight thirty four. And so at this point, Christ called all of the people to himself. Okay, which tells us that the message that he's about to convey is for everyone, including you and me. So after Christ had his disciples sort of look into their own future, if you will. Okay, he now gives, or look into his own future, I should say. He now gives them a look into their future, right? He told them about the mission of the Messiah. Now he's about to tell them about their own mission. Again, this applies to all of us who accept this invitation to follow Christ. So the question was this. Remember the question, who do you say that I am? The correct confession is the Christ of God. Right? You are the Messiah. And here we see the invitation from Christ, which is come after me. Come after me. 
Okay, which of course is our right response to our confession of Christ. Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him. So the invitation to follow Christ is open and it's available to anyone who desires. In other words, it's all inclusive. Anyone can come to Christ. However, the way in which we come is very exclusive. Okay, and Jesus gives us three steps along this process. We see him here. He says that one, we must deny ourselves. Two, we need to take up our cross. And then lastly, follow him. All right, so think of it like this. In order to be a disciple of Christ, two things must happen, okay? Oh, but you just said there were three steps. I know, just stay with me. In order to be a disciple of Christ, two things must happen. But there are three steps to following, okay? The two steps of dis- discipleship are confession and conforming. We confess Christ, and then we conform into the likeness of Christ. We must confess him first, just like Peter did, before we can begin to be conformed into the likeness of Christ, okay? Hopefully that's making sense. But if we confess Christ as Lord, that's salvation. That's justification, all right? And when we begin to follow Christ, when we start that process of being conformed into the likeness of Christ, that's sanctification, okay? This is the process of becoming more like Christ. We talked about the three aspects of salvation early on here at Community Church, which are justification, sanctification, and glorification. Okay, those are the three aspects of our salvation. But Jesus here lays out three steps for those who would believe, who would be saved and come after him. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. All right, so what does that look like? Well, to deny ourselves, that would simply mean I've got to forsake all. All right, I have to deny all. I've got to deny my plans. I have plans. You have plans. I get to deny those, right? My will, my hopes, my dreams, all of my wants, my desires, that gets denied. Deny yourself. In other words, I can no longer look to please myself, okay? I look to please Christ. That's step one, deny yourself. Step two is to take up your cross, which literally means to die to yourself. So not only do I deny myself, I actually die to myself. Remember, a cross is a means of execution. Okay, And so the people who would take up a cross meant that they would surely die upon that cross. You don't take it up unless you die on it. right? So spiritually speaking here, we die to ourselves so that we can live for Christ. So that we can proclaim his message. It's no longer about me. It's all about him. We want to complete his mission. I don't care anymore about my plans. What are the plans the Lord has for me? That's what's important to me because I've denied myself. I've taken up my cross. I've died to myself. And now I'm going to live for Jesus, right? I need to obey the Father. I need to be led by the Spirit. I am dead. The old Shea is gone. The new Shea should live for Christ each and every day. But as Jesus said, there's going to be suffering. It's not going to be easy. And I love how Jesus is just so honest with us about this, because especially in the face of the prosperity gospel and the health and wealth stuff that you hear out there today, Jesus is just straight up with us. It's going to be tough. You're going to suffer. Uh, You're probably going to be rejected. Um, So Christ followers are not exempt from the suffering and rejection of the cross. But to take up our cross is to essentially lay down our life for other people, just like Christ has done, right? 
just like he's done, even in the face of suffering and rejection. But I want you to notice something here. There is a stark difference between a Roman cross of Jesus' day and the cross that Christ is referring here for us to take up. There's a difference. A literal Roman cross was imposed upon people. In other words, they didn't take it up willingly. They were told to pick it up, right? You did something wrong, you're going to get executed, you pick that up. That's a Roman cross. However, Christ laid down his life willingly. The Bible is clear about that, right? Jesus said that. No one takes my life from me, I lay it down willingly. And therefore, he presents the cross to us, to you and me, as something that's to be taking up, taken up rather, willingly. We must take this cross up willingly, right? All those who desire to come after me. Guys, I want you to know that this is what actual Christianity looks like. It looks like a cross where we die. It's not health and wealth. It's not name it and claim it. It's not prosperity gospel, right? It's about dying to yourself that you might live in the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want you to look at the reality of the entire picture here because it really is good news, right? I mean, yes, we will likely, as believers in Christ, as followers of Jesus Christ, we will likely suffer. We will likely be rejected at some point, and some of us might even be killed for our faith. We know that this happens all the time overseas to our brothers and sisters in Christ, even today. But I'm here to tell you that death is not the end because death has been defeated by Christ from, from his cross, right? Christ is risen from the dead, okay? And so that's part of the promise for you and me as well. Okay, it doesn't stop at death. Yes, there will be persecution, but that's not the end of the promise. Yes, there's going to be rejection, but that is not the end of redemption, not at all. There might even be death, but that's not the end of our deliverance. There will also be resurrection. Because Christ lives, so will every single person that takes up their cross and follows him. We put something down. That's our life. We take something up. That's the life of Christ. Right? And we follow him. Okay, that's step three. Following Christ in obedience to his word. That, all of that is biblical Christianity. Okay, now I want to be very clear about something here, just so I'm not misunderstood. Um, Jesus is not placing a condition upon us here in order to receive salvation. Okay, not at all. That's not what's happening. We're saved by grace, through faith, not of works. That's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. So the condition that Christ is referring to here, at least in steps 2 and 3 here of taking up our cross and following him, is for those who are saved. Okay, it's for those who have already been saved and are following him. We've already denied ourselves. We've come to Christ. The confession of our heart is clear that Jesus is the Christ of God. Okay, so we've got to be very careful here to understand the difference between when Christ is talking about discipleship and when he is talking about sonship. Okay, because the cost of being a disciple of Christ is in fact our own suffering and our own self-denial, so to speak. All right. However, the cost of being a child of God is very different. Because it's dependent upon Christ's suffering and Christ's own self-denial. We can't work for that. It's a gift, right? Christ paid the price for our, our adoption. We never could. So we are saved by his work, not our own. But there is a cost associated with being a disciple of Christ. So not only did Christ suffer, so will all of those who follow him. Because the way of the cross brings suffering. It brings rejection. It brings pain and it brings death. 
And we should never, ever gloss over that fact, okay? Christ calls each and every one of us to come and die. But we should also never, ever forget that glory is at the end. Okay, it doesn't stop at death. Paul said in Romans chapter 6, verse 8, Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Amen. New life, resurrected life awaits everybody who has denied themselves, taken up their cross, and followed Jesus. Verse 24. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Now, this statement from Jesus here absolutely turns conventional wisdom on its head. Okay? What we try to do, we try to make more money, don't we? Oh, we try to take more medications. We try to work out even harder. We try to eat better. We try to do all of these things so that we can extend our life, i.e. save them for just as long as we possibly can. But Christ says here that the only true way to save your life is to lose it for my sake. So would I rather have a few short years here on earth of self-absorption and narcissism and things like that? Or would I rather die to myself now so that I can live with Christ for all of eternity? That's the question on the table. Verse 25, what does it profit to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? Or as Matthew tells us, this is the more common way that you've heard that said. Jesus says this in Matthew 26, or 16, 26 rather, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? You know, the way of the world doesn't seem to make much sense when you put it that way, does it? It really doesn't. We should remember here that this is exactly how Satan tempted Christ in the wilderness. Exactly the same. Luke chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. But unfortunately, too many people have taken Satan up on this trade, right? They've traded their soul for things like pleasure. They've traded their soul for things like wealth or comfort or ease or appetite or any number of things, right? Some people have sold their eternity for a few short years of acting like the boss, being in charge. But I'm here to tell you all of that is a facade, okay? That's not reality. Because the truth is, most of us, guys, we're never even going to be the mayor of Union, Missouri, much less the ruler of the kingdoms of the world, right? Yet we settle for so much less. We trick ourselves into thinking that there's so much more in the world than there really is. We allow our souls to be satisfied for so little. I mean, we occupy our minds with trivial things. We fill our lives with fluff and with stuff. And what, what's happening is we are desensitizing our spirit to the things of God. That's what's going on. We've become so easily pleased with the pleasures of this life, right? That we've forgotten what it's like to long for heaven. We've forgotten what it's like to long for new life, to fix our eyes on Jesus, right? We tend to just look at all of these small and frail satisfactions in the world when we have so much more to look at. There is so much greater if we would just look beyond to the future satisfactions of the next life eternal life in Christ Jesus, the very place where we can find satisfaction for our soul. Where's the longing for heaven? Where's the longing to be born again? Please don't harden your heart towards God. Don't, don't ever allow your spirit to become numb to the things of God. And it can happen. Romans 1 is a good study on that. 
But the word tells us, Jesus tells us, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's Matthew 6.33. And in that, we will find eternal salvation for our soul. So we need to trade the pleasures of this world for the very peace of Christ. Verse 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and the holy angels. All right, so let's take a close look at this verse here. Because when you look closely at verse 26, what you will find is an expression of Christ's own deity. This is a call to worship. This is a call to surrender. This is a call to proclaim. Look here. Christ's own glory is even placed ahead of the Father's in this verse. Interesting. Not that it's greater, but that it's one and the same. It's one and the same. Christ is God. Okay, so he's basically saying here, thou shalt have no other gods before me, Exodus 20, verse 3, right? Because some people, what they've done, they've allowed stuff to guide their soul. That's verse 25. While other people, they've allowed shame to guide their soul. That's verse 26. And of course, pride is at the root of both, right? So don't let that happen. Let Christ be the true confession of your soul. I like what William MacDonald says here. He says, It is completely irrational for a creature to be ashamed of his creator, for a sinner to be ashamed of his Savior. And yet, which one of us is blameless? Man, that's sad but true, isn't it? We're all guilty on one level or another because far too often we're more ashamed of our Savior than we are of our sin. We've got that exactly backwards. Right? We, what we've done, I think we've allowed society to sort of creep into our Christianity and redefine or even remove our shame, right? We, we can't let that happen anymore. Not, not as true followers of Christ. Because you see, the truth is, a lukewarm Christian life, that's shameful. Cultural Christianity, for example, that's a shame. Closet Christianity, that is what is shameful. A life that proclaims Christ but never actually lives for Christ, all of that is a shame, okay? But we've allowed our culture to influence, influence us to the point to where sin is no longer shameful. It's not. We've allowed it to say, you know what? Only those people who are actually trying to live like Christ, those are the people who should be ashamed, right? Don't buy that. Don't ever buy that lie. Jesus said this very plainly. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory. That's what Jesus said. So go ahead and let the world shame you, believer. That's okay. Because one day you can stand before your Savior unashamed. I think, honestly, the shame of this world is going to seem like small potatoes when we see that threefold glory of Christ coming at his second coming. And I'm here to tell you the reward of Christ is far greater than the reproach that you will ever endure for Christ. The reward is greater. Verse 27, and we're done. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. Now it's worth repeating here, I think, that death is not the end because the kingdom of God reigns eternal, all right? But I don't want you to get tripped up on this verse, okay? I don't want you to lose the forest for the trees here trying to figure out which of these disciples didn't die, okay? Because they all did. They all did, right? 
Now, some believe that we see the fulfillment of this promises, promise rather when we get down to verse 28, uh, down through verse 36. You know, when Peter and James and John see Christ on the Mount of uh, Transfiguration. In other words, they sort of get a preview of sorts of what the kingdom's going to be like here on earth. That's one view. Another view is that uh, Christ is talking about the resurrection here. Uh, so I have my opinion on that, but I'll leave that up to you to decide and, and study out. It could be either one. But again, all of that to say, don't miss the main point of this passage here. This passage, it teaches us the gospel, okay? It teaches us that Christ will suffer and die for the sins of the world, that he will defeat death by his resurrection, and then he extends an invitation to everyone who will come to him, everyone who will follow him, everybody who desires to come after him, right? And of course, those who come after Christ, they can expect persecution, they can expect rejection, just like Christ endured. But there's something else that they can expect. They can expect resurrection and they can expect reward because Christ purchased that for us by defeating our sin on the cross. He defeated sin and death. I mean, this is really a beautiful portion of Scripture. It's a beautiful portrayal of the gospel because if we die with Christ, then we will live with Christ. If we are redeemed by Christ, then one day we will reign with Christ. Again, death is not the end for the Christian, just like the cross was not the end for Christ. I mean, sure, the cost is, is great, right? Following Christ has a cost, but the benefits far outweigh the cost. So we need to remind ourselves of two things as we close. Guys, there's two things that's coming for us, death and Jesus Christ. Two things are coming. Nobody in this room or any other room will escape the grave except Jesus come back first, right? Death is coming. It's coming for all of us, but so is the Lord Jesus Christ, the very one who defeated death. Think about that. When Christ comes, he's going to come in all of his glory and he's going to receive to himself his own, all of those who are, by the way, not ashamed, all of those people who actually denied themselves, who took up their cross, who followed him. So before we get out of here this morning, we have to respond to the same question that Christ asked Peter and his disciples. Who do you say that I am? We must answer that. Guys, we have to deal with that. Because how we respond to that question will determine our eternity. C.S. Lewis famously said in his book, Mere Christianity, he said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say of Christ. They would say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis says that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says that he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else he's a madman or something even worse. 
but you can't shut him up. Or he said, you can shut him up for a fool or you can spit at him or kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and worship him and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Amen. Warren Wiersbe says it's impossible to be wrong about Christ and be right with God. So true. And of course, Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. So what do you say? Father, we love you and thank you for this message this morning. Thank you for this portion of scripture that's so challenging because it really pierces to the heart of what we believe. It really uh, exposes what we think about you. But I thank you, Lord, for your directness. I thank you for your bluntness. And, and in a couple of different ways, really. Asking us point blank, who do you say that I am? But then also letting us know that the way of the cross is going to be difficult. Following you is not always going to be easy. But glory's at the end. There is glory at the end. After the suffering, after the rejection, after the death, is the resurrection. And if we die with Christ, we will surely live with him. That's your promise. So thank you for that promise, Lord. Thank you for sacrificing your life for our sin. My prayer is that if someone's hearing this message today and they haven't denied themselves taken up their cross and followed you, that they would do that even now. That they would turn from their sins and trust in you, Lord Jesus, by faith, believing that you are the Son of God who died on the cross for their sin and rose again the third day so that they could have that same resurrection hope of eternal life in Christ Jesus. I pray that they would turn from their sin and trust in Christ by faith right now. I pray, Lord, that for the rest of us who are already on this journey, who have taken up our cross and are following you, maybe we're in a rough spot. Maybe we're in the suffering part. Maybe we're in the rejection part. Who knows where we are along the path? I pray, Lord, that you would help us to keep our eyes firmly on Christ, our resurrected Lord, fully understanding that in this life you will have trouble. You've told us that. But be of good cheer because you have overcome the world and you've done that through your resurrection. You defeated our sin. You defeated death. We have nothing to fear and everything to look forward to, everything to gain. Heaven awaits. Eternity awaits for every one of your children. Thank you, Lord. Help us to live in light of that. Resurrection is coming. Sin has been defeated. Death has been defeated at your cross. Thank you, Lord. Please bless the remainder of our time together today, Lord, and help us to take this truth with us throughout the course of our week, Lord. Help us to apply it to our life, to live for you, to serve you faithfully, to put away our plans, to put away our dreams, to put away our hopes, and put all of our faith in Christ Jesus. Help us to go where you send us and do what you tell us to do and to do it all in faith. 
for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.